0: Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, would you be turning to the book of Judges to begin this morning? Judges chapter 19, and we'll talk about chapter 19 and chapter 20 in just a moment as we begin. We're thankful that you're here, as always, thankful for the time we can spend together studying God's Word on this beautiful day. Uh, Even though yes, it was snowing for many yesterday, we're thankful for the weather uh, that God has blessed us with and the opportunity to be together um, and we'd like to remind you, as always, we'd love to have you in our afternoon service at 1.30. You're always welcome to stay for our time of lunch that we have between services, but uh, certainly we want you back at 1.30 as we assemble together to study again. Uh, if you have a copy of the bulletin in front of you and maybe an outline pulled out, you'll notice that this evening or this afternoon we're going to be looking uh, at the book of Ezekiel. We cover two uh, books in our Book of the Month Club back in February so that we'd stay on track as we talked about Joshua in March and so we're ready to get back on schedule with that and we're going to talk about Ezekiel this afternoon. It's a bit of a a deep book uh, but uh, you know kind of a lot to cover in just a few minutes but we'll do our best to maybe encourage you with some thoughts from that. As I was considering what to speak about on Sunday morning what would uh, maybe possibly go along with that uh, something that could maybe connect in a way and trying to I think about a good sermon for us to consider. Uh, There's only one that, that sticks out in my mind that I think about when I go back to the book of Ezekiel. And in particular, as we'll touch on just a bit this afternoon, from Ezekiel chapter 37, the story of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. There's only one sermon that really sticks out in my mind that I've heard. And I don't know if this will run you off or make you feel better, but it's an old Freddie Clayton classic. Uh, that he's done many times. In, in fact, it's one of his, as many preachers call it, their gospel meeting sermons, you know, uh, one that Hannah would tell you that she heard so much over the years that she could probably stand up and deliver it when she was a young child because she would go to gospel meetings with him and he would deliver this particular sermon. And she had heard it so many times that if he asked her, you know, what should I preach, she'd say, please, not that one again. You know, let's go find another one. Uh, but it was one of his favorites that he did so many years. And, and I think about it because it talks about Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 and we'll get there in just a moment but let's begin first of all in Judges chapter 19 to set the stage with a story that's really not that fun to talk about by the way if you don't know the book of Judges or haven't studied it in a while uh, it ends sort of somewhat here in chapters 19 and 20 on a bit of a sour note kind of an awful story to consider when we think about uh, what is said there to kind of try to summarize it for just a moment There is a Levite who is traveling in chapter 19 with a a woman that we would refer to, the Old Testament often refers to as a concubine. They come to one particular city on their travels, and it's late, and they say, well, we should stop here. And the Levite says, well, no, I know these folks, and we should not stop here. This is not a good place to be, even as we sometimes today talk about maybe places you shouldn't be at night when you're alone or that kind of thing. He says, no, 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 not here. Let's go a little bit further, and let's find some of our cousins, so to speak, if you will. So in about verse number 12, they decide they're not going to stop where they have come to, but they're going to go a little further, and they're going to find uh, some family, some cousins, if you will, and they're going to then stop there. Now, the story takes a turn in chapter 22, well, even really, or excuse me, verse 22, but even really before we get there, because as they come into this, what should be familiar town, this family town, they're not welcome. They're, they're not really given this hospitality, as we might say, or welcomed in. Nobody says, hey, as you're traveling through, why don't you come home with me and, and lodge with us? And so maybe that's a red flag, but we see there then in verse number 22 that certain men come along to this Levite and his concubine, and you may see some different words there. The new King James has perverted men. You may see the phrase sons of Belial. That phrase sons of Belial, when it's translated, uh, actually means worthless men. So perverted might go along with that, but worthless men come. And it says in verse 22, they beat on the door and they're looking and they end up taking in verse 25, this concubine. And again, the new King James says in particular that they abused her. Abused her all night long so much that in verse 27, when the master, when the Levite's going to arise and go to the door of the house and in the next morning, the concubine is laying there dead from all of the abuse that she had taken from these worthless men all night long. Now, maybe this connects with what we feel is the case in our country today, that sometimes we are so shocked by even family or, or people in the world at how far they might go. I mean, these people would have been folks that, you know, again, family, we come in. They're our cousins. They would treat us well, and yet here is something so vile and awful that they have done. And the Levites probably thinking, how could we have gotten to this point? And once again, connecting it to 2022, we sometimes look around us and say, how could we have gotten to this point? With so-called Christians— with sometimes so-called family. How could we have gotten to this point with homosexuality, with their thoughts on gender in our society, with the breakdown of the family? How could we have come this far and gotten to this awful point? Well, in Judges chapter 20 and verses 8 through or eight and 11, the Levite does something that is kind of awful, just to be honest, again, to continue this awful story, but it definitely gets the attention of the people. He takes this concubine and he's going to take her dead body and cut it into pieces and then send it out to one piece to each of the 12 tribes. And it certainly gets their attention because it is in verse 8. The people arise, it says, as one man saying none of us will go to his tent, none of us will turn back to his house, none of us will eat, none of us will do anything. And in verse 11, all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. You see, this definitely, even though it's an awful story, gets their attention. This receiving of a body part, if you will, for lack of a better way, easier way of saying it gets their attention But for those who this city who has committed this awful atrocity, or at least the people around it, instead of going and finding the guilty, they decide to defend them. And in the end, by the end of chapter 20, they're almost, the Benjamites, almost wiped out. About 400 men are left by the time the chapter concludes, because instead of going and finding those who have done wrong, they decide instead to defend them, the guilty people, and to fight, and they're almost wiped out. Now the question is, how could this have happened? Uh, We think about the connection to our society today, and we're going to get there, but how could this have happened even among God's people, that so-called faithful people, people of God, would do this kind of thing, not only this guilty atrocity, this crime, but then people would defend them in that. We don't have to go very far, it's actually found in the book of Judges, We can go back to chapter 17, or the same phrase is used forward in chapter 21. In fact, it's chapter 21 and verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How could we have come this far? How could this have happened? Everyone did what they wanted to do. Does that sound familiar? We don't have and we wouldn't take a, a woman's body and cut it into pieces. But what we face is still very serious even today. Because what we are dealing with, and we've already mentioned just a couple, are spiritual issues. And it's still very serious. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28, in fact, Jesus would go so far to say and remind us that it's not the physical that we need to worry about, but it is the spiritual Do not fear those, he would say, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, he's essentially saying, who cares if you lose your life? Who cares if you lose your life if you're going to lose your soul? These spiritual issues are very, very serious. And when we look around us, even as they did there in the book of Judges, and we wonder how it is that we have come this far And we kind of shake our head, shrug our shoulders, wonder what's going on. But it's because, as God said so long ago there in Judges, everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at three particular words. And those are the words of the title of the lesson that are going to kind of carry this thought out for us a little bit more and make some application. The first comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, chapter 37 in verses 1 through 14, and that is the story of the Valley of Dry Bones, as we mentioned just a moment ago. And the first word, of course, in the outline, or the first word in the title is bones. As we're going to talk about this afternoon, the book of Ezekiel is full of a lot of visions. It's quite difficult in some ways. It's another one of those, maybe not far behind the genealogies that you want to skip over when you read the Old Testament. Things like Ezekiel is is not far behind sometimes because of the visions and those kinds of things which are really hard to to understand unless you really sit down and look at it and maybe even sometimes have a commentary with you. But in verse 1, we see that Ezekiel is having this vision. He says, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Now, what are these bones? We don't have to go very far, and we find our answer in verse number 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel and they indeed say our bones are dry our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off they're screaming our hope is lost and they feel scattered they feel hopeless they feel as if uh, their elbow bone is over here and their ankle bone is over here and they feel like that that their hope is lost now we can make connection here because of course in the new testament in the book of galatians paul would say that we are the house of israel we are the spiritual israel even today so the question then for us is, do we sometimes feel as if we are hopeless? Not, not even just in these United States, because I think it's easy sometimes to feel hopeless when we look around us or watch the news. But even in the church, sometimes do we feel hopeless? It might be easy for us to sit back and to long for the so-called glory days. We've talked about this before, but many of you, who are older, can think back to a time when the church was very strong. There were Christians everywhere, it seemed. We can we say, oh, let's long for those days when things were better. Not today when things are hopeless. Well, what is the answer? In that case, let's even go back to Ezekiel. If you turn there to chapter 37, what is the answer? What did they need to help them? And in verse number 4, Again, he said to me, the Lord saying to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Well, what's the answer? The answer is preaching. The answer is the word of the Lord, the truth about things being preached. As we can continue to kind of go back and forth between the current time and even back into the days of the judges or Ezekiel, in 1906, there was a U.S. census, and you may be familiar with this. We celebrated the anniversary of it in 2006. We were still around Fried Hardeman at that time, but we not, I guess, maybe even celebrated, but thought about the events that, that came about because of not the 1906 census. You see, it verified what had kind of been going on for a while in this country and maybe even here in the Bible Belt. In the 1906 census, the United States government recognized that there was a difference between the churches of Christ, and one word or phrase in particular was this idea of the disciples of Christ. And how big a deal was that? Because some of you are saying, well, I never heard of that. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. But this is true. A person on the census that year on the survey could then choose Not just churches of Christ or church of Christ, but there is a difference. There are two choices that you could choose. It was a big deal because six out of seven congregations or meeting houses were moved into a designation of of leaning away from God's word as authority. And this kind of thing, this kind of number, six out of seven might cause people to say, that things are hopeless. This kind of idea might cause people to say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost. But there's more to this story, as there sometimes is the case. Even though a person might say, Well, and think about it. I mean, go around Chattanooga. Start right here. And I mean, you could even go back if you want. You could even go up towards Cell Creek and, and Dayton. But if you want to go into Chattanooga, start picking out every meeting house. And take out six and leave only one. That's a little discouraging. But the rest of the story is is that that one seventh or one out of seven that was left over in the next 20 years were actually those people were able to double their numbers nearly in size. See, sometimes bad things happen and we get discouraged and we will cry out, our bones are dry, our hope is lost. But it's not lost. There is more to this story. And it's sort of like another biblical example. If you have your Bible, you might look in 2 Chronicles chapter 25. 2 Chronicles chapter 25. When we think about this idea of, of being down, being upset by a law such as that, it's sort of like King Amaziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 5 through 9. King Amaziah is the king, is the king, excuse me, of the southern kingdom of Judah. He wants to go to war. He's about to go to war. He's got 30,000 fighting men, but he's worried that may not be enough. 30,000 or 300,000, excuse me, 300,000 may not be enough. So he goes to the king of the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he says, will you sell me, in essence, 100,000 more fighting men? So he goes and he says, I will offer you 100, verse number six, 100 talents of silver for 100,000 mighty men of valor from the northern kingdom of Israel. Sounds fine, right? But we continue on, and in verses seven and eight, God sends a prophet to King Amaziah. And the prophet says, Don't do it. The prophet says to King Amaziah, God says the message of God is is that I am not with them in the northern kingdom as I am with you in the southern kingdom so do not do it do not go through with it and if you do you will lose and what's King Amaziah's response well in verse number nine his response is well what about the money though what about the money Instead of being thankful that God would warn him and that God was with him, he's more concerned about the money. And so it is at at the end of verse number 9 that the man of God, speaking on behalf of God, says, What about the money? The Lord is able to give you much more than this. The Lord is able to do so much more than you can think or imagine. The principle is when we try to figure out success on our own, we are in trouble. We need to consider what God considers as success. God is pleased when we do what He says. Pretty plain and simple. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the 21st century, God is pleased when we do as He says. And here's the principle applied today. After all that splitting back in 1906 and thereafter, and the supposed shrinking, the yearbook of American churches reported that from 1941 to 1961, the churches of Christ grew at a rate of 580%. Because very often we might get upset, we might want to cry out, as those Valley of Dry Bones did, and say our hope is lost, but the The message of God is the Lord is able to do so much more than this. This represents an attitude that can sometimes happen among our brethren, the valley of dry bones. Do we need to look at things differently? Do we need to say our hope is lost? Friends and brethren, I'm here to tell you this morning, as long as we are alive, our hope is not lost. These are dark times in some ways around our country, in our society, in these United States. But very often it's not as dark as it has been before. When God was still working and things were still happening, even though there are valleys, so to speak, quite literally of dry bones and hope that feels lost, there are still mountaintops of success. The church still has had periods of growth. Do we need to look at things differently? Sometimes, absolutely, without a doubt. And I know as, we thought about, as I thought about this example and thinking about Freddie's lesson, you know, he's had this again for many years and used it. And the 1906 census is, is a big deal, and it was kind of a big deal, and thinking about the change of things that were happening. But I even began to think about today. You know, if we modernize it just a little bit whether it be presidential elections or Supreme Court nominations or congressional elections of people who who promote vile and ungodly things, whether it's the legislation that those people then pass that allow vile and ungodly things in our country, whether it's the cancel culture or the prevalence of Hollywood and, and their liberal thinking in our athletes and sports or even now in our classrooms with our children, whatever it may be, it seems very dark and our hope may be lost or feel lost, But as long as we are alive, our hope is not lost. We may feel like that valley of dry bones, but the question maybe then is, well, why aren't we growing like we did back then? And that leads us to our next point. (coughs) Excuse me. The problem with our bones is a problem with our attitude, which comes from what we have been fed all this time. Our second word in this particular outline is the idea of pudding. And, And when you think about what we've been fed... Our problem, maybe, in which we are not growing like we think we should, the problem with the idea that we feel our hope is lost, is the pudding that we have been fed, that we have continued to eat. Some people say, those in prominent positions would say, well, you can't preach like you did back then. Or, if you preach like you did back then when the church was growing 580%, then we might offend someone, and we might run them off. That is the pudding that we have been fed for so long. Think about it again. In the 40s and the 50s, we're growing at a rate of 580%. But then in the 80s maybe and and in the 90s, there is this shift to, well, we can't do the hellfire and brimstone stuff anymore. It might hurt people and run them off. Things like, well, let's just preach love above all things. Or people who say, well, just give me Jesus only. We need Jesus. We need to love and follow and serve and preach Jesus. But Jesus also talks about his commandments that we are to follow and obey. Well, when we think about that shift in thinking and those kinds of phrases, this kind of idea of not wanting to offend anyone, not wanting to run anybody off. Well, then some studies were done, kind of like we've already talked about. And the thought that thought process was beginning to take hold and be preached in some congregations. We stopped growing from 580% to around .012%. Now, if you do the math and extrapolate it out, that amounts to one person, one person being added per congregation over about 18 years. When we think about from the 70s into the 80s and the 90s, that number dropping from 580 to .012 is one person per one congregation for a whole 18 years. You see, what they said is that strong, firm preaching would run people off, but who are we going to run off when there's not even anybody in the pews anymore? Because the preaching has become something that is full of cowardice and compromise. There is a book in our library, I believe, I didn't double check, I know it's in my library, that is by our brother Dave Miller called Piloting the Strait. And he outlines in that book four stages that have taken place over the last century, the last hundred years or so. And it's a bit of an older book, not, not that old. But, you know, as we think about time changing. Certainly our culture has changed some even since it was first written and published. But think about these things and allow me to, to explain for a moment. For a time, there was a spoken understanding when it came to preaching and teaching. And that is that the truth was preached. It was spoken and people understood it. The truth was preached and it was often preached and people in the pews knew it. They understood that. But then we kind of began to shift and over the course of this time maybe the preaching became a little softer. It was compromised a little bit. Maybe we shouldn't say some of those things. Maybe you shouldn't quite preach on baptism so much, preacher. Maybe you shouldn't just hammer that home all the time. So we move into an unspoken understanding and that is that a Problems arise here in this particular section because people generally knew the truth. They knew that truth was the truth, but some people began to say, We don't need sermons like that. We don't need to study that in Bible classes anymore. But people are still growing up, right? Those things are being said, but there are still people in the pews who are growing up and they're not hearing those same things that people before had heard. And so, They're not hearing the truth because it's unspoken. So there's a little bit of an understanding, but it's not being taught anymore. Spoken, it's unspoken. Then we move on to the unspoken misunderstanding, which is now there are people who don't know the difference between denominations and the Lord's church or between practices that the Bible clearly and plainly teaches because it's not spoken or talked about anymore at all. And so people don't, it's not preached about, and people don't know it. And there's an unspoken misunderstanding. And I don't know if we're still in this section or not. Certainly maybe in our culture we might could make that argument. But now we are at a spoken misunderstanding. Because now we have people in the pulpits and across our brotherhood and our brotherhood universities who are openly speaking false teaching about the word of God. Speaking things that are just not true. We move from something that is good to something that is outright speaking against the word of God In just a few short years, it seems like, because we then begin to compromise and move away from speaking the truth to just not really talking about it as much to then allowing people to just outright speak falsehoods and false teaching. Can I make an invitation here one more time to our Bible class on Wednesday nights? We started last week with a bit of introduction. There are still several books on the table in the foyer, but we hope to spend the next 10 to 12, maybe even 15 weeks or so talking about certain issues and things on Wednesday night, things that have been around for a long time, but things that truly matter when it comes to, be, to speaking the truth about the Word of God and the practices in which we should follow because God has said this is the way that it should be. We hope that you join us because it, we hope to have a good open discussion We've said it may take a couple of weeks to go through some things because we may have questions. We may have to go back and forth or think about some of these things. But we want to get back to the truth of the matter and we want it to be spoken clearly, especially here at Saudi. We can worry about everybody else later, but let's take care of ourselves and what we think first when it comes to many of these issues. But we're not going to leave off with no hope this morning. We're still alive, like we said a few moments ago, and there's still hope all around us if we would just look. The last word, which may make no sense unless you get through the point here, is the idea of nets. And as you see on the screen, you can be turning to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we read of one of those great occasions where Jesus shows somebody who he is by what he says and what he does. Jesus comes to, let's not forget, professional fishermen. Right? He's just not walking by the shoreline with somebody who's standing there with a stick and a piece of string. But, but he's coming to professional fishermen who haven't caught a thing all night. Right, Peter, James, and John are there, and they're struggling. And in verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered, And said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Now, I always ask you how close you read. Did you catch the difference there? And I don't know if it's on purpose or not. Can't say without a shadow of a doubt. Maybe, maybe not. Jesus says, Let down your nets, plural. And it seems almost as if maybe Peter is just patronizing Jesus just a little bit, right? He says, okay, fine, I'll let down the net. I don't know if that's the way it's meant to read or not, but that's certainly the way it says there. And it seems like maybe Peter is patronizing Jesus just a bit. Do you think Peter had any idea of what was about to happen? If he would just do what the Lord said, then they're going to need to have to call for help from the shore to take in all the fish that they are about to catch. And it was all simply a result of doing what the Lord said to do. Nobody has authority to demand of us anything that the Lord hasn't demanded of us. But it is our obligation as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the body of Christ, to demand of each other exactly what the Lord demands of us. And to fail to do that is a true disservice for us to do to one another. Why not just do what the Lord said to do? We need to let down our nets, obey his word, and maybe then we'll see our hope is not lost. But let's go a little bit further. In Acts chapter 14 and verse number 1, we read another example of this idea of doing what the Lord said to do. Now, the Lord's not here, of course, at this point in the book of Acts, in the sense as he was there in Luke chapter 5. But it says, They, and that's Paul and Barnabas, now as they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, they so spoke, or so spake, that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Paul and Barnabas speak in such a way. That a great multitude believed. What did they say? Well we don't know exactly what they said. We don't have the sermon typed out. A transcript that we can read. But, but so here is the adverb. It, it tells us the way that they spoke. And here's what I can tell you. I can't give you the transcript. I can't tell you exactly what they said. From beginning to end. But I can tell you that whatever they said. Lost people found out that they were lost. And they needed to make a change. Jews And Gentiles. So whatever they said, the Jews said, they found out that it didn't matter how close they were to the law of Moses. It didn't matter how much they held on to those laws. They still needed to obey the gospel. That's what they found out. The Gentiles found out that they couldn't follow their forefathers in idol worship. They needed Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were changed. They were converted even as we talked about. They believed. So not only do we need to continue to let down our nets, but we need to continue to so speak. The failure in many pulpits today, many churches today, and the problem with preaching is that men and women are lost. And those in the pulpit are speaking in such a way as those that are lost leave feeling just fine. They are not convicted of being lost. And they leave thinking, well, it's not a big deal. It's not a problem, and the whole time they are lost and going to be condemned to a devil's hell unless they change, unless they change their lives. The failure in many pulpits is not so speaking as to convict people that they need to change. When we think about this lesson, the dry bones mentality is killing our efforts, Some people look around and they think that the power of the gospel is gone. And if we're asking who those people are, I'm going to raise my hand that sometimes it's easy to feel that way. Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. And what we've seen through some of this lesson is that it's the rotten pudding that is causing that attitude to take place. But what we simply need to do, speaking to myself as well, is get back to casting our nets because we still fish for lost souls. We need to get back to so speaking as Jesus spoke, preaching the word of God, standing for the truth. And one more time, I'll invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. You're welcome then, as you always are on Sundays and anytime we join together. But in particular, as we think about some of these issues that have come up over the years, issues on which people begin to bend just a little bit, maybe compromise just a little bit, and so then you go from a spoken understanding all the way to a spoken misunderstanding. Before you can even blink, it feels like sometimes. We need to preach the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's simple plan of salvation. See, this lesson wasn't all about this, but if you're here this morning and you'd like to know more about God's simple plan, we'd love to study with you as soon as possible because it is the greatest decision that a person can make. Having a family, getting married, all those things are great. They're important. They can be. But becoming a child of God so that you can have the hope of a home in heaven, not living lost, is the greatest decision one can make. We enjoy, we so enjoyed last Sunday the chance to sit here together as a family and see someone added to our number. We would love to do it again if you're here this morning and you are lost in need of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you've done that in times past. You've been baptized for the remission of sins. Maybe it's a failure to stand for and speak the truth. Maybe it's something else that you are missing in your life, some other sin in your life that's separating you from God. We're thankful to have a moment like this, to sing a song that's been selected, that through its words we might encourage you to make a change. You see, we don't want anyone to walk out those doors feeling comfortable in their sin or feel like it's okay to be lost. You can become a Christian this morning, or if you are a Christian, but maybe you have turned your back on God and you've wandered away, you can come back to him. You can leave with a peaceful feeling, with hope, knowing that your life is right with God. We're thankful to be together as a body, to sing, to encourage one another to make a change. We're thankful for our elders who encourage us to do that, and one will come forward in just a moment to pray with you and for you. If you need to make a change, would you consider doing so now as we stand together and as we sing?